No, at the point that I thought something was up was when we were on our way home talking to Caitlin on the phone. I'm like, is Caitlin at our house? But then I just thought, you know, she was there and she came
sitting back there, and I thought to myself, well, I'll just remind them to look in the bulletin at the upcoming dates, and then I realized that those who are listening from afar do not have this fancy-dancy little paper, so we should be considering ourselves very blessed, because we get handed a list every week uh, with, with not only the songs from worship and the sermon, but also upcoming events and missions and things like that are going on, and so we have this. We can put this in our phone. At the dentist's office, they always say, do you want me to give you a little card with the date on it? And I say, no, I already got it in my phone. But when they hand me this, I can put them in there because there's several cool things going on. And one of them you don't even know the date of yet. I'm about to tell you that in a moment. But next Sunday, a week from today, we will be celebrating our sixth anniversary since we constantly. Can you believe it's been six years since we signed that piece of paper? Is that nuts? That's crazy. Six years have flown by very rapidly since we resigned the Constitution and became uh, constituted as the United Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. And that is our official name. We had that big, long name for a long time. And then even after we constituted, we had kind of a big, long name. Uh, and now we have just New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo, which is kind of long. But we just call it New Heights Fellowship. That's why I usually say to people. Most people get it. A lot of people already know what it is when I tell them. So that's pretty cool. But anyway, so that's next week. And that means after service, we will be doing our cookout and block party and the whole nine yards, as it were, um, and having a good time. We will be promoting it to the community. Uh, we have missed out on some opportunities to do that, but we will, we will make good on our opportunities this week the best we can to get the word out about that. And the last time we did something like that, it was pretty well received, and I hope it will be again Sunday. And then... Uh, What's going on with the pantry on Sunday afternoon? Remember, what, what, what did we decide about that? Open at the end. Open at the end. Okay, so pantry will be open at the end, so that'll be a blessing again. Which is good, because it should be hard to do both those at the same time. Um, but anyway, so uh, then, don't miss it. Coming up, the week immediately after that is our all-family fellowship. And we have, the, we have had for almost two months now, over two months now, in fact, the shelter house by the tennis courts, by the playground, at... Pearson Park Reserve for us to be there, and that, so even if the weather is bad, God willing, it won't be. No, it's the other side of the tennis courts. Oh, yeah, outside the tennis courts, yeah. So, not the one right next to the playground is very small. One there, they, yeah. they made it bigger. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so we'll be we'll be away from the just a little bit away, but okay. really within striking distance. Okay. And we got grass, and we got fun, and we got time together, and um, and we're. We're church, quote unquote, that's us anyway, so we are providing meat, so if you're willing to help cook some of the meat that's being provided on top of bringing the other things that you're bringing, let us know, and we'll get that done, but we're, we're going to have meat there, and then the church, y'all, me all, we all, are bringing the stuff that we're going to eat along with it, and if you're somebody who normally gets transported here on Sunday mornings, make your arrangements so you can make sure that you're able to go that, because uh, that's actually... Sunday afternoon as well, so it'll be after church, after pantry, I assume, right? So after the pantry, we'll be going out to the park for our all-family fellowship. And it's like, did I say, what's the time? Five, 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 five or five thirty. Okay. So if you're norm, so, someone normally gets transported, you would normally go home, and then you would get picked up again because it's not until five o'clock. Okay. So if other arrangements are going to be made, then you need to talk to the people who transport you, and talk to the people who allow you to come, and all that and get that situated. And everyone is asked to participate and bring a little something to share food-wise, so we'll have plenty of food. And um, that is not this coming Sunday. This Sunday is a cookout block party. Next Sunday is this coming. Two weeks from today, there we go, is the event at Pearson Park. Then, 
Don't miss it, because you didn't know this date until right now. If you have exhortation spiritual gift, I'm talking about that. Uh, again, I'll mention it, uh, spiritual gifts a little bit at inspiration all the time, because it's really on my heart to do that. Um, if you have exhortation spiritual gift, June 1st, the evening of June 1st, the evening of June 1st, which is a Monday night, I will be here, because i that's one of my spiritual gifts, praise the Lord. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But if you have that, then June 1st, 6 p.m. in the cafeteria, dinner provided. It's a one-hour event where we will share our successes and failures and using that spiritual gift. We'll talk about what it is. We'll eat together. It's a, And this is going to be a new thing for us. So then going forward, we'll have additional fellowships, additional fellowships based around... So we'll have additional fellowships based around each other spiritual gift as we go on. And we have a lot of these going forward. Okay? All right. And then, don't miss VBS, the Freedom Celebration. Uh, that's all coming. The human trafficking event, which is not us doing human trafficking. That's us talking about human trafficking. We have some very important guest speakers who will be with us that evening. So I suggest you block out time for that to hear what they have to say. Uh, it's pretty cool what we might be able to do as Christians to make a difference. If you're not aware of it, Toledo is one of the top cities nationally. You'd think New York, San Francisco, uh, L.A., Miami, Chicago, like that. But per person, we are one of the top cities nationally. And part of it is because we're so connected. They snatch somebody off the streets here, or a lot of them come through here because of all the expressways that go both ways, the airport, trucking, international Ships that go in and out of port, thousands of them every year, all that kind of thing. It's a terrible thing what goes on with that, and there'll be more details on, at that event. Um, and then we'll end that at 8 o'clock, so the kids will be in Team Kid an extra half an hour. All the kids are excited about that. And uh, the youth will be with the adults in the human trafficking events. Okay? That's the current plan. And so, you got your bulletin. They don't have their bulletin, but I encourage you to uh, keep track of the events and be prepared to be involved in everything that's going on. And we're going to do it together as a body, and we're going to give God the glory. Okay? So I, I want to thank you for those of you who sent me prayer requests uh, Thursday, Friday. I did have a great time in prayer and fasting with the Lord. I was very blessed by God's presence. And a lot of things came out of that. You'll be hearing about some of those things, not necessarily today, but going forward because I'm excited about it. And um, I know that I did pray for every request that was sent to me multiple times. Uh, some of them for as much as a half an hour each. And so, praise God um, that I was able to do that, and you supported me to be able to do that, and that's pretty cool. I say happy anniversary to RJ and Alicia. Today is their 12th anniversary. They didn't even seem old enough to be married for 12 years. But when you look at their kids, you can, you can believe it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> look at Jason, and you can believe they've been married for 12 years. So, um, But 12 years today, praise God. That's one year for every tribe of Israel. Yeah, yeah. When I told the guys for the retreat how long I've been married, they went, "No." Yeah, that's a blessing. The Lord keeps us young, so we've got some folks in our congregation who've been married a lot longer than that. Praise God. So they and it's kept them young too and doing a lot. So we're blessed. All right. And so we're gonna uh, pray at this time and jump into worship. And I've and I've asked and prearranged. Caleb is gonna have our opening prayer today. So. It's the Jesus show. You ready? All right, here we go.
those people who are sick, those people who are alone. Help us all through today at church and Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Let's praise him. Alright, it's that time again, so I need everyone on their feet if you are able. And I need all of the young type peoples towards the front of the room. You guys can come out front if you want.
It's inspirational moment time. And I have been inspired this week, and I had a big long list of stuff I could have talked about. Uh, but I have my duty, and I felt, and I said, Lord, do I need to do that? And the Lord said, yes, we need to do that. So I'm going to talk about that first. Anything else? And that's spiritual gifts. I had a brother say to me this week, he said, um, I kind of lost the joy of serving the Lord. He said, I kind of lost the joy of serving the Lord. And I said, wow, I said, that's, that's a tough spot to be in. I know that people have been there before. Um, and... I've been there at times before, and I thought about as I was talking to him, I thought about how have, how has God helped me when I've been in that spot before, where I sort of lost the joy of serving the Lord. And I know there's a few things that God uses all the time, and you could probably go beyond this, all right? But the first thing that this come out of my Sabbath rest that I just took in prayer time and fasting, dealing with the Lord and so on. One of those is that Sabbath rest. That rest, you are supposed to be intentional about marking time out, spending time with God. And yes, we are with God now, but we are with God collectively, right? And there's part of you that is maybe um, bristled a little bit because the person next to you or the person that's talking, maybe you're annoyed a little bit by my voice or somebody else is goofing off and they're distracting you or your mind is somewhere else, you got a problem. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get my money in line to pay that bill or whatever, things like that. And so there's, there's, there's always little things like that. But when you get a, alone with the Lord and it's just you and God, there's really only two things ever going on. And one is you're talking to God, the other one is you're listening to God. And that's it. It gets very, very simple at that time. And so then when God talks to you or he says, get up and go do something, you find the strength to get up and go do it. And the joy comes with the strength God provides and fills it as you go, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that, so one is that time and rest alone with God. That's one way that God does it. The second way that God does it, you just did it. I hope, I hope you did it. If you didn't, you really missed out on opportunity. We have just a little bit more opportunity left today, and that is worship. Worship is one of the ways that God adds joy to our service. We're going to talk a little bit about it during the sermon today, so I want to get ahead of myself. But the bottom line is, if you love God, and you know who God is, and you know what God has done, and you know what God is doing, and you know what God's going to do, then you've got a lot of reasons to praise God. And when you praise God that way, God fills up His people as they're praising Him. When you recognize Him and what He's done. If you're talking about what's going on in your life, that does not recognize God. You're talking to people about your opinions, that does not recognize God. You're talking uh, to God about the problems that you have. That's not really recognizing God unless you're saying, okay, I understand only God can do it then that's something. But if you're just complaining to God, that may comfort you, but that's not really about God, right? But when you're praising God, you're, you're putting Him first, you're recognizing who He is, what He's done, what He's doing, what He will do, and God fills us up with strength as we praise Him. I can't tell you, I mean, more times than I have all my fingers and all my toes, and it's probably getting to the point where I have more times than all the bones in my body, which is a couple hundred, right? And I'm... I'm thinking more times that I thought, well, I don't really want to go worship. And then I get there and I start worshiping and I sing and just get filled up from the inside. It's not like when you're hungry, you go to McDonald's, you give some money, they give you a Big Mac meal and you feel not hungry anymore. It's like you feel like, oh man, I don't have it. I don't know if I can, I can do it. And then you start doing it and you say, praise God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You know, or you sing just that first few phrases and God just shows up and empowers it. So worship is a big way, right? There are lots of ways, as I said. The third one is what I want to talk about, and that's just spiritual gifts. Everybody, from the moment that you are saved, the Holy Spirit doles out to you a specific spiritual gift. And maybe more than one. You might have one, 
you might have 10, right? It's typical that those who have a lot of them have each one that they have to a lesser degree. Does that make sense? If you have 10 of something, you might each one might be less a driving force in your life. But if you have one of them, it might be the thing. You know what I'm saying? It might be the only one. God's just made you just wired to do that. That's what you do. And the others, kind of like, they're useful things, but you're not, it's not a gift from God. It's not really what drives you. And so when you exercise your spiritual gifts, and you recognize that. And so for me, for example, with preaching, when I preach, and I know I'm saying what God wants me to say, God empowers me from the inside. It's like a pat on the back spiritually. Like I'll go, man, I know I couldn't have said that. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have figured that out. I couldn't have seen that there if it wasn't for God. And you get that lift from the inside. Now, I'm trying to explain to you a spiritual thing in human words. So I know it's hard. If you've never felt God lifting you up from the inside, you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that. right? If you've never felt drained or like run out of spiritual strength, like you just, oh man, I just don't know if I can go on with what I'm trying to do for the Lord, then you might not understand what I'm talking about. And they're just words. I'm just saying words right now. It's just going in one ear and out the other. But the bottom line is the Word teaches us that God gave us a spiritual gift and that as each member of the body exercises their spiritual gifts, they themselves are lifted up by God and then we collectively are lifted up by God, we're linked together by God and we grow individually and corporately into the image of the living God, of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God and God in the flesh. We will never get to be like God, not really, truly, we'll never be God. But we get to be a little bit more like God, and we can test and approve what His good will is as we walk our life and are renewed in our minds and grow and, and have that blessing. So, know your spiritual gifts. Use your spiritual gifts. Now, that's not, in, in a couple of cases, it's going to dictate the kind of ministry that you get into, but in most cases, it doesn't. Okay? For example, if you have a service and help spiritual gift, which is one of the spiritual gifts that people have, you could literally use that in any kind of ministry. You're just going to wind up boosting it, building it up in the background. You don't have to be in the limelight. You can just be able to drive in there and make a difference, fixing some problem, doing something that needs to be done, being the strong person, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. You're going to be able to go in and do that. If, you're, if you happen to have exhortation, which is more of an outward, outspoken encouragement, drawing people out to do what they're supposed to do, a lot of people who have exhortation get into preaching, but that is not the only way by any means that it is used. Okay, And it isn't even only spoken. Sometimes it's written. Some people have the gift of exhortation do it through writing. And so you can figure out how to use your spiritual gift. And then every time you use it, whatever ministry you use it in, every time you use it, you get that little attaboy and the joy of the Lord. How awesome is it um, when you realize you're doing something that you could not do in your own strength, but God is doing it for you. And that's, that's that power of the spiritual gift. So, if you haven't done so, get yourself a spiritual gift analysis. There are basically three ways that you can figure out what your spiritual gifts are. And they all kind of work together. The first one is take an analysis, take it like a test. It says, do you do this? Put it up. Hey, the number one through ten. Do you do this? Do you do this? You do this, and you just go down and listen to the questions, and you number, this never happens to me, this always happens to me. And at the end, you add them up, and it's going to tell you what most likely what your primary spiritual gifts are. Okay? Second best way, or second way that kind of goes in conjunction with that, but it's less so. I'll take them away if I hear them again. You hear me? Thank you. All right. So the second best way is to ask people who know you. 
Work with your family, your loved one, your spouse, your kids, your friends, people you work with in ministry. And say, hey, I think, you know, here's my analysis says I might have these five. Or here's, I read in scripture about these gifts, and I think I might have this. What do you think? Do you think I have that spiritual gift? Have you ever seen me do something weird with that that you couldn't quite explain? Or can you give me an example? And, and they'll help you digest it. They'll help you figure out, is it your spiritual gift? If you get, if you get in there and you go like, number two says I might have the gift of um, service. Uh, spiritual uh, service and helps. And you go like, I don't think that's me. Before you dismiss it, you better ask the people who know you because maybe you've been doing it and you don't even realize it. Right? And then the third way is the word and prayer. You just read what they are in the Bible and pray and ask God and compare it to your life and let God point out to you. And God may give you a vision in your head of you doing that thing and how you felt while you were doing it and how powerful that was in you. Right? So there's nothing required, no biblical thing about a, taking a spiritual gift analysis or a survey. However, it's a very useful tool to get you started. Okay? Prayer in the Word, that's how they did it before surveys were ever developed, was prayer in the Word and talking to others. Right? And so you can do it by that means, or you can do it by that. But if you think you have the spiritual gift of exhortation, then I would like to invite you to have dinner with me on June 1st. It's not, it's not going to be anything fabulous. It's going to be basic dinner. And we're going to eat something. But we're going to spend time talking about what is the gift, what can one do with it. And then we're going to, at the end, we're going to have like anecdotal, we're going to tell stories of what happened when somebody used their gift like that. And then you'll be able to, hopefully out of that, you'll be able to determine, do I have it? What can I do with it? Okay? And that's the goal. We're not going to study a lot of scripture about the gift. It's not a Bible study. You're not coming to a Bible study. It's a fellowship. It's a spiritual gift fellowship. Right? So it's us working together. Now that we think we've figured that out, what does that look like? Right? So that's June 1st, and I want to tell you how to explain it. I felt really convicted that I need to stand up and talk about spiritual gifts because somebody here didn't have a clue. And, and we, all, we all think everybody in the room totally understands that, but somebody didn't know, and now you've got it, I hope. Or at least you have an opportunity. Okay? Thank you. All right. So um, how, how has the Lord been speaking to you this week? As I said, I have a long list, like longer than my, my uh, what is this called, Cuban? Right? Uh, Arvin, you got something? All right, let's hear it. Um, there's another song that I've been listening to a lot. Okay. Um, song that speaks to you. It's by the same person I did last week, but uh, it's a really good song, and I'll explain a little bit more later after the song. One, two, three.
because to me it reminds me of who I used to be. Um, so before I got saved, I always felt like I was a lost cause. I always felt broken. Um, nothing ever seemed like it was good enough. Like, no matter how hard I tried, nothing ever seemed like I was doing enough. And even even now today, I still struggle with that sometimes because there's multiple times in my life where I'll just sit back and I wonder, am I ever doing enough? Am I doing a good enough job as a dad? Am I doing a good enough job as a husband, a provider? So it's like you, you always have those thoughts, especially, I mean, this is mostly for the guys, but especially as men, we're, we're meant to provide, we're meant to protect. And I don't know if it's, well, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a guy thing for sure, but for, to me it seems like a guy thing that we always have that feeling like it's not good enough. Like nothing we do is ever good enough. And then we start getting into a spot where we hold on to things that aren't really good for us because it makes us comfortable, it makes us feel safe. And in the song, that's one of the things it says, is he says all of the drinking and smoking feels hopeless, but it feels like it's all that he needs. So there, you know there's a problem, you know there's something that's wrong, but it's the only thing that you think makes you feel at peace. And like I said, for me, that's how it was before I got saved. I mean, there was, it's hard to go look back and realize where I was and realize where I am now because I've always wanted something to save me from it. Like, I've never wanted to live a life like that. And I finally did, and it's changed my life dramatically, but this song is a reminder that, you know, you may feel like it's hopeless, you may feel like it's a waste of time, and you may feel like you're a lost cause, but with God, you're not. You're not a lost cause, you're not a waste of time, you're not a waste of space. In God, you are someone amazing. And I think there's plenty of people in this room, even, that can testify to that because you look back who you used to be before you got saved and look where you're at now and look at how much God has done in your life. Even, I mean, even the little things in your life become huge things now because you realize that it's God doing it. Like, something as simple as being able to raise children or just pay a bill or have the extra money to go, hey, I can help you do that if you, someone needs it. Just simple things in life become huge things because you know that now it's God doing it and not you striving to find something else. Yeah, that's a good word. I thought you were going to preach the opening of my sermon there for a second. I'll leave it at that. All right. All right. And I can rip fast. <laughs> when dance, get your dance on. It's awesome. I love this song. The plan was get to a bus. Next thing you know, the two of us floating, drifting somewhere new. She said we had to take a shortcut. I'm trying to be a good sport, but I don't see how we make it through. Remember the size of the world before. It was you and I, just you and I. And now the horizon holds so much more. Do or die, yeah, it's do or die. All I can do when the road bends is lean into the curve. And all I can do when the 
the bee. Hey, Bebo, are you scared? You know, my dad used to sing to me when I was scared. So did Andres. Hey, we can sing more of the songs. That would cheer us up. I am you, just on another show. Always in your corner, watching you soar. <laughs> Drumming's in my blood. I can teach you if you want. You're gonna teach me how to play drums? Here, Vivo. Check this out. Try a simple beat. That thing you're doing is noise. Observe. Wow, you learn quick. I must be a really good teacher. Uh, oh, my little Here's what I love about these verses. 
Remember the size of the world before it was you and I, just you and I. So just remember the size of the world. It was just you and I. It was me and God. It was however it was. You know, it was just you and I. We were good. But then the horizon became so much more. It got really big or it got really hard. It got really crazy. And I don't make fun of anyone, but I'm broken and busted. Some people have been broken, but not busted. Taken advantage of. Not truly discipled. Whatever it was. I'm not talking about churches or nothing. But God brought me back and discipled me. And God uses it. I'll say this real quick. If you were in a football field and you were a football player, even you could play baseball. You're not going on the baseball field right away. You were trained for football. That's what God does. He takes someone that's broken and busted, reach out to people that are really even broken and busted, patiently working with them. Some people can't even understand it because they've never been through it. I've been through it. Ten years of just the hardest days of my life. So I can understand and relate to a lot of people. So the rising so much more, now it's do or die. We can't just give up. It's either we do it or we die. We can't quit. And then he says, all I can do, and this is the best part. And even at the end when the, the girl's singing that song, he's like, I'm still not going to listen to that. All I can do, all we can do, church, is when the road bends, is lean into the curve. Amen. We lean to the cross. We lean to who God is. We don't quit. We, we, this is, there's no other way to do it. They're going to lean some other way to just keep going, but they're really not going. Because we have to lean to our God that is absolutely sufficient in all of our needs. And all I can do when the tanks run dry, because we're going to have tanks that are going to run dry. we got to see what's in reserve. God Amen. is absolutely sufficient in everything that we have. He, we're not running dry. We have everything in reserve by God. And then it says this. All I can do when the plans break down is stay on my feet. The plans will break down, but we keep on the feet. The gospel of peace. We keep walking in the peace of God. They can't take away what we're doing. They can't take away what we can do. They can't take away what we could do. They can't take it away because we stay on our feet with God. We walk that path the Lord has. We ain't perfect, but it's not our path. Hebrews chapter 12 says a race marked out for us. Amen. He didn't, we didn't mark it out. He marked it out. It's all marked out for him, us. He's got the, the obstacles, the snares, and when you do get his trap, he's got a way out. He's got a refreshment station. Every little thing is marked out for us, the church, everybody, not just you. Even though it's a podcast, he's got a race marked out for you. And finally, all I could do at the end of the day, because the day ends. The day doesn't end for God. Glorious Lord spoke every day in existence, the very day he spoke it. He knows when the day ends. There is no end to the day to us. Because we need a day over. We need to uh, is play on and play on and keep the beat. And so what it really means to me is at the end of the day, follow the drum, follow the guitar, follow whatever it is that you keep listening to every day that God does. Stay with that beat. Don't give up the beat. Don't try to change the beat. Don't try to make the beat different. Stay with the rhythm of what the Lord is doing in your life, what the Lord wants to do, what the Lord is doing. Because it's not in the rhythm. It's his. Alright. Good stuff. Alright. Anybody else? I'm good. I'm going to touch on what he was saying just for a minute. Um, about how you lean into it and you have to lean into God. So, first thing that popped in my head was it's a lot like riding a motorcycle. If you don't lean into the turn, you fall. Mm -hmm. You go off road. And then that's how we are with God. If we don't lean towards God, we fall. And then we go off the road. And then it makes it so much harder to get back. How about you pray for us as we transition? 
Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time together. Thank you for everyone that's here, God. Thank you that we're able to do this because there's many places where we wouldn't be able to. Um, thank you that you blessed, enough to, blessed us enough to be here. Um, thank you for every household represented here, every person represented here, God. That And uh, I pray that we're all here to learn more about you and to grow and to see your your power work. Um, God, I just pray you bless everyone here. Um, bless every family. And uh, keep everyone safe, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.
It has occurred to me a number of times during my Christian walk, as RJ began to touch on, and I warned he was touching on the illustration of the sermon, that I have wanted to do something more for God. Has that ever happened to you? Has there ever been a moment in time you say, I want to do something more for God? Like maybe somebody's hurting and you're talking with them and suddenly you get this kind of internal urging that you really desperately need to say the right thing? Or you're working in the church and the church is talking about uh, a mission trip or giving or serving in some certain way and you go, I really feel like I want to do something more for God. There's a grave danger in wanting to do something more for God in a good way and in a bad way. There's a grave danger in wanting to do something more for God because uh, you can want to do something more for God and start to do something that isn't for God or about God or doesn't really fit the bill, so to speak. And that's the story today uh, that we're going to hit on. It comes to us in a unique way. Uh, and in a moment after we go to the text and you're with me there, I'll give you the history and the background of the text. Okay? All right. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Amen. Amen. Praise God. This is all about God's Word from here on in and whatever it is that God would have us to say. Thank you so much. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, as I said, I'm going to give you a little bit of brief background. I'm not going to go back and read the text. If I read everything that we needed to understand everything that was going on in this very historic text, we would be here way too long. So I'm going to give you the summary. The bottom line is the Ark of the Covenant is not in Jerusalem. David has taken control of Jerusalem. Um, and he is, his seat is there, and he's doing well, has many houses and that kind of thing. He's prospering in Jerusalem, but the, the house of the Lord is not in Jerusalem. Um, and it gets in David's mind to move the ark back. The reason the ark is not in Jerusalem is because, you may recall, there were two sons of uh, Eli who were unfaithful to the Lord. They were not serving God the way they were supposed to. Eli... Uh, in his youth, had been a high, a high priest and had been serving the Lord faithfully. But then as he raised his sons, he didn't do a good job. And his sons moved away from God. Um, and they took the best of the offering for themselves and things like that. And uh, that's how Samuel kind of comes on the scene. Samuel's a young boy and that household's raised by Eli and dedicated to God. And there's a certain day at which the Israelites go out against the Philistines in war and they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. They already had fought for a couple of days and they were losing badly. And they thought, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. We can't lose if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us. They took it out there and uh, they lost it into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines, an ungodly people who had nothing to do with God. They were not Israelites, no blood in them, no Semite blood in them at all. In fact, they were a seafaring people from, and nobody historically really knows where they came from and settled exactly. Um, but the bottom line is they captured the Ark of the Covenant, God's seat or his footstool on the earth. And at that same moment when the messenger came and told him that Phineas and... Uh, I just lost his other name. It'll come to me in a second. Uh, gosh, the two sons' names. I had them memorized and I forgot them. I'll get them in a minute. It'll come back to me. But anyway, the two sons of Eli were slain in the battle. And... Um, uh, the ark was captured, and at that, si that same time, Eli, when he got the news, he fell over backwards off his chair, broke his neck, and died. And so that was the end of that priestly line, if you will. And the ark went into the control of the Philistines. And after that happened, uh, the Philistines had they moved it from city to city, and everywhere they moved it, plagues struck them, and horrible things were happening to them. And they said, we've got to get rid of this. And so they put it on a new cart, on two oxen who had... Uh, um, 
anyway, two oxen who would be separated from their families and might, might turn the other way, but they put them on a road aimed back toward Israel. And, and the, the, um, the cart was marching along back toward Israel. But as it got near to Israel, um, they, they, um, they were afraid to accept it. They were afraid... What's that? Hophni. Hophni and Phinehas. Thank you. Couldn't get that other name. But anyway, they, they were afraid to accept the cart back in the Israel. So they, the Philistines stopped at the border and they, they contacted a nearby town and they said, you take the cart, you take the Ark of the Covenant. And, the, and they were Israelites. So they said, okay, we'll do it. So they took it into their town and they had it for the, and then they began to be blessed. They're being incredibly blessed. God's people, Ark of the Covenant, they're being incredibly blessed. And so they said, well, we're going to move the cart, we're going to move the Ark up to Jerusalem, first try, okay? And this is during Saul's day. And while they were moving it up, there was a man named Uzzah who was walking along behind it and he, was, he had helped to care for the Ark of the Covenant in the house where it had been stored for a while. And uh, he's walking along behind and the oxen stumbles and as the oxen stumbles, he reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes out and kills him just like that. And they're like, oh gosh, well how can we bring this Ark of the Covenant, that holiness of God, how can we bring the Ark up? And so they right away, they, they named that place the place where God struck out and killed Uzzah, and they moved it aside into the house of uh, uh, an Israelite uh, who would take care of it. I'm not getting into all the details here, the bottom line is, and, and then of course his house begins to get blessed. And now we're in David's day, and that's where we pick up the story. David is thinking about bringing the Ark of the Covenant up, Okay. And so this is what he hears. In verse 12, 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, it says this. It says, It was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. That's the house where they had gone aside and put the ark in there and they're taking care of it and keeping it safe and whatever. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. Now, if you go over and read the other account of this, to be, to, just to be clear for one second, if you go over read the other account of this over in uh, Chronicles, you'll see that this time they have actual Kohathites who are carrying the, the, holding the poles and carrying the ark the way it's supposed to. The first time when they moved it up, when Uzzah was killed, they just put it on a new cart like the Philistines had done. But now they've gone back and they've looked like they've looked at exactly how you're supposed to carry it, and so they're doing it right. Not only that, they sacrificed at the first six steps. But David is now dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, which is basically a, a loose-fitting, soft garment. Uh, you, to us, it would look like he was wearing like um, almost like pajamas or bath clothing, but it's over wraps, right? He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michal, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So there he is in what is almost kind of like a little bit of, you know, almost like an underwear type situation going on in very loose fitting clothing. He's probably showing more of what he, than he should. He's being very flamboyant because he's dancing and whatever, but he's focusing on God. And she sees him dancing in front of all these people. And whatever moves her, she begins to despise him in her heart. Now, there is a story in the background you may know or you may not know. And again, I'm going to summarize it. We're not going to go read the text, but you need this background to understand her position. So Michal has probably been wronged by David. In fact, she's probably been wronged by just about everybody. Uh, She loved David in the beginning. See, David was promised the, the older daughter of King Saul in the early days. And then King Saul tricked him. And instead of 
giving him her, his older daughter, which would have put him in line for the throne. He gave him his younger daughter. But it says in that text that she loved David. Okay? So Michal loved David and became his loving and supporting wife. Okay? Then, later, uh, so in the same story, not like five verses later, Saul demands a payment for the betrothal, and David has to go and kill a bunch of Philistines and brings back their 100 Philistine foreskins for her betrothal. That's his dowry. Okay? Which he does do that. And then... You know how things erupted between him and Saul. And Saul tried to kill him a couple of times. And then he's chased out in the country with some, some guys who are pretty much like the dregs of society, but they're very strong. Um, and they're out in the country. And while that happens, Saul gives Michal to another man. Now, they've never literally been married. And they've never slept together. But she, he, he gives his daughter Michal to another man. So then... Fast forward, David, you know, three incidents, could have killed Saul, didn't, whatever, all that happened. Saul and Jonathan are eventually killed. David comes back and becomes the king. Then he asks, well, where's my wife that I was promised? Now, by the time that happens, David has already married Abigail. Now, you remember her? She's in the countryside. David's out there with his men. They're hungry. And, and he goes to this man and he says, give me some food and water for my men. And the guy's like, I don't know you from Adam. I'm going to help you. It could be treason, whatever. And then he goes out and the men start talking and they decide they're going to go back and punish him and take what? Because David is the rightful king ordained by Samuel, right? But they say, well, they're going to back and punish him. And Abigail comes out and meets him and says, my, my husband spoke wrongly. He didn't understand. Forgive him, whatever. And so he winds up killing her husband and taking her as wife, and Abigail becomes his first wife. Then he later goes, and he's staying away still, and he takes another wife. So he's got two wives already, and then he goes back and he says, I want Michal, the first wife that I was promised, that loved me, and I loved her, and I want her. So he takes her away from her current husband. Now as her husband, as, as she is forced to walk up to Jerusalem to be David's wife, her husband walks behind her miles, like over 10 miles, walks behind her all this distance, weeping the whole time. And when they get to Jerusalem, he ta- David takes Michal into his house, it was supposed to be his first wife, but it was never technically his wife, and then he marries her, and then he sends her husband away, back home. Okay, So she's been wronged in every possible way. She's had it really bad. So people think that David did this to her. Right? Or that Saul did this to her. And I think that's pretty accurate. I think Saul did this to her. right? Because he first gave her, without her permission, to David, and then took her and gave her to another man, and she was just trying to legally be obligated to her husband. And then David comes in, and by his own right, he had the right to do so, took her back. Right? So I think Saul's the one who kind of did it to her. But it, whether Saul did it or David did it, I want you to see God did it. God allowed it. Okay? I'm not saying God was punishing her for anything. I don't know that. I just know some bad things happened in her life and God allowed those bad things to happen. All right? That's where she is the day she looks out and she sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. That's the full circle. She loved him when she was first betrothed to him. Now she despises him. Okay? Then it says in 17, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. That's our God, the God. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michal came out to meet him. 
how the king of Israel honored himself today, she says. You can hear the snarkiness, this, this sarcasm in her voice. How the king of Israel honored himself today. So he, she accuses David of honoring himself. She said, he exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. So in other words, you dance barely clad in front of all these people. All these people saw you dancing. And she accuses him of exposing himself and honoring himself, but not God. 21 says, David replied to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. So in other words, I I danced not for myself, but before God. I humbled myself before God and let everybody see that I was humbling myself before God, is what he says. And then he says, however... By the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. In other words, they will recognize she didn't, but they would recognize that he was dancing and making a fool of himself, if you want to say that, before the Lord. He was humbling himself before the Lord and honoring God, and the slave girls would recognize that, but Michal was not recognizing that. You follow? Okay. Then he's, and then it says this, and this is a terrible proclamation for her, and it says, and Saul's daughter... Michal had no child to the day of her death. So at that point in time, as far as we've gotten, that is the end of the house of Saul, essentially. At least the ruling house of Saul. It's done. There will be no more male heirs to take the throne. Um, with one small exception who would never be able to take the throne. So she, her line is dead. She did not recognize what David was doing when he danced in a linen ephod before the Lord and honored God and, and then blessed all the people. She didn't recognize what he was doing, and her line is dead. Her house is dead. Now chapter 7. When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, so everything's going perfectly, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan was the prophet, and he told the king, Go and do everything that you plan to do. It's all going to be honoring to God. Verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? Hear that? It's an accusation, if you will. It says, Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? In other words, is this a thing I've ever asked you to do? To build me a house? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be a ruler over my people Israel. You, this is basically what he says. You were nothing, the lowest of the low, and I have made you everything. I have made you king under me over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies from before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them 
as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. So in other words, God says, have I ever asked you to do that? Listen, let me tell you what I'm going to do. And God just turned it around, didn't he? Instead of making it about what David needed to do for God, God said, now let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise you up. I'm sorry. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So he's talking about Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in other words, not only will there be Solomon after you will build the house, but on top of that, there's going to be somebody on the Davidic throne forever. Almost done. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you, from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. So David got it just exactly as that. All right. So a few things I want you to see in here, and it's, some of it's a little tough. The first thing I want you to see is that David wanted to do something more for God. He wanted to bless God. Out of his humble heart, dancing in front of the coming Ark of the Covenant in an ephod, kind of shamefully, if you will. I mean, he's king. He could have been in a crown. He could have had a rod. He could have had a golden cloak on. You know what I'm saying? He could have really been decked out. And he could have shown all the people how awesome God is because of how much God had blessed David. Right? But instead, he put on the simplest of garments, maybe exposing a little bit too much of himself, and danced joyfully and humbly and honored God before the Ark of the Covenant. We know he had a heart he wanted to bless God. So then out of that heart that he wanted to bless God, you can see Nathan do that too, right? Because Nathan said, just do whatever's in your mind to do for God. It's going to be great. That was Nathan's initial reply. But then God said, all these years I have lived in a tabernacle. All these years I've lived in a tent that went here and there and everywhere. Have I ever told anyone, any Israelite, any time ever to build me a house made of cedar? Have I ever done that? And David's like, well, they would have to say in response to the Nathan the prophet who comes and says, well, no, you never did tell me to do that, right? I've never done that. God says, I've never done that. David had a heart that wanted to bless God and that led him to want to build God a house. I want to do something magnanimous, something huge. Remember we talked about last week about how we were into grand gestures. And the week before, right, we are talking about grand We've got this idea that I want to do something that only I can do for God. Every time you say, I want to do something that only I can do for God, you forget that God can do everything for himself. God does not actually need you to do anything at all for him. Our actions and things that we do for God, they are not to honor God. We make it out to be like that. Like, ah, I'm going to go one step further, you know. I'm giving 10%. I'm going to give 11. Or I'm going to give 19. Or I'm going to show up an extra five hours and work harder. I'm going to push harder. I'm going to go until I'm sore and tired and got nothing left. Right? And we make it out like we're somehow providing something for God. Or do we want to bless God in some way. David knew that God is good. 
And you should as well, out of what God has already done in your life, you should realize that God is good. But also realize that when people see you and see you do something amazing for God, we had this conversation, Alicia said it beautifully in the team meeting. She said, when people come and they see all that we do for God, they get a little intimidated. And they're like, I can't imagine how you do all that. And they get fearful of doing that to living like that. And we do a lot. And our church, being as small as it is, has the biggest footprint of literally any church that I am aware of anywhere. I know there are mega churches that will say they've planted 40 churches and, and so on. But no church of this size has ever done what we have done. But we haven't done it. God did it. So people look at us and they go, look at you, what you've done. I, I can't be like that. That's too much. You're asking me too much. People see you, and when they see you, they don't see God. They don't. Do you expect people to look at you and see God because of the mighty works that you are doing? Even if they see you, as like, wow, he's incredible. How can he do that? He can do what nobody can do. There are magicians that can do what nobody can do. And they don't go, oh, there's a magician over there that made the, the Statue of Liberty disappear on TV. And Man, I've got to go praise God about that. Unless they already have a heart to praise God, they're not looking at them and going, well, that's incredible. The people who wrote series and became like J.K. Rowling, and everybody knows that name in all the world. Everybody knows J.K. Rowling because they wrote Harry Potter. And you're like, well, I didn't know that. But most people in this room probably did, right? But people don't look at Harry Potter or J.K. Rowling and go, oh, man, God. Yeah, I can see definitely God did that, right? Because there have been other people who have written, right? God will see you they will see you. They will not see God through you. Not inherently. Not because you do something mighty. Not no matter what you decide to do for God. It will not happen. So the question is, how will you lift Him up and yet get out of the way so that He can be seen? If there is a line, it's God. And I'm not... Somebody out there is going to go, this is heretical, man. He's going to be all kinds of trouble, right? It's God, and then it's us, and then it's the lost people of the world. Now, it's not actually like that, right? We're actually in all amongst them and all that kind of But if there was a line like that, tracking spiritual growth, spiritual positioning, whatever, it'd be God, Christians, lost people. That would be the line. If there was a line, there isn't. But if there was, that would be the line. And if you're there and you're holding up God, yes, God, yes, God, and looking, they're looking at the bottom of your feet, they can't see God. They just see the bottom of your feet. They see your butt end going, yeah, God's awesome, right? I went to a concert some... Uh, some years ago with the guys in our family went to an NF concert. It was really cool. I watched 80% of the concert on the cell phones of the people in front of me. Literally. I'm not joking. Because everybody had their cell phone up like this, video in the concert, right? And because I couldn't, I couldn't see past the heads of the people in front of me very well, and I certainly couldn't see past their upraised cell phone arms, I could see lights and action and stuff, but man, I could see it on the cell phones real good. So I'm watching the people in front of me. There's like 10 cell phones. And I could see the scene and the, and the smoke and the lights and the artist and everything. I could see it beautifully. That's what it is. But, but what's happening is you're, looking, you're focused on God and people are looking at you and there's nothing. There's no screen. There's no, there's no projection. There's no way for them to watch what you're watching. You're not a scrying device into another realm. So how are you going to serve the Lord and honor Him and lift Him up and still get out of the way for people to be able to see? Well, David got it. <laughs> this part of his example is awesome. He totally figured it out. If you want people to see God and see what God has done, you have to humble yourself before God. Before we're through, I'll give you one practical step of that, but I'm gonna, I want to read from the, the speakings of another man who figured the same thing out, and it's John the Baptist. 
And so if you would go with me to John chapter 3, verse 30, if you're following along. John chapter 3. So John chapter 3 is a great chapter, by the way, obviously, because, you know, Nicodemus is in here before we're through and stuff. There's, uh, there's some really good stuff. But I just want you to dial in on one little set of comments. And I'll go back to verse 27. So John, that's John the Baptist, responded. So this is chapter 3 in verse 27. John the Baptist responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. In other words, the the party, the groomsmen around the groom are super happy because they hear the, the voice of the groom and what's happening. And he says, so this joy of mine is complete. And verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. That's the rest of us. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true, for the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God, that means the violent opposition of God, Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The before and the after break down to this. He must increase, but I must decrease. So now I'm going to give you just one single, solo, worth looking away from your phone if you're not following along in the Bible, worth not being distracted right now at this moment. I'm going to give you one single action plan. I want you to look at yourself. I want you to look at your personality. I want to look at your experiences, your passion, whatever. We talk about shape, your heart, your attitude, your personality, and your experiences will lead you to what you can do for God. Put your spiritual gift in there. Boom! You're living your shape, and you can live that way for Jesus forever. And now I want you to look at yourself. I want you to look at your passions, the things you've done in the past, your experiences. I want you to look at the things that are there and the things that are not. Someone in this room is going to say, well, for example, I, I am not a public speaker. I know for for a fact that I am. Not, I don't get up in front of people and talk. That's something I have never done. I never will do. God will never use me to do that. Or somebody else will say, "I am not a person who reaches out to people who are hurting. I see they're hurting, and I can stand by and I can be strong. But I, I don't have a word of encouragement. I don't have a thing. I can't say, "Hey, can I help you in some way? Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, can I ask you what's going on? Because I'm afraid they're actually going to tell me, or whatever, right?" Whatever it is, whatever it is about you that you say, that's not what I do, that's not who I am, you want to honor God? Do that for God. Now, not if it's sin. I'm not talking about sin. Right? Nothing that's sinful. But by putting the thing that you can do for God fully in your wheelhouse, this is what I do, this is what I'm good at, this is who I am, this is the strength that I already know that I have. By doing that, you're not honoring God. People are always going to look at you and say, man, he's strong, he's doing strongy things, he's smart, he's doing smarty things, she's wealthy, she's doing wealthy things, she knows how to dress and look nice, so she's dressing and looking nice. People are always going to do that. And listen to me, all those things I just listed, all of those people have already existed a thousand times 
a million times, a billion times under the sun. It's already been done. You cannot do anything that anyone else does and do it for God and somehow bring Him glory. It's not going to work. What you have to do is the one thing that you would not do. That's what you have to do. You have to say, people have to look at me like, there's a man, there's a man who, I, I wouldn't expect him to be doing that. I, would, I know him. I can't imagine that he would extend himself in that way to do this thing. Wow. He's really taking a risk. He's putting himself out there. He's really, she is really doing something that I don't think they're capable of doing on their own strength. That's when God gets the glory. Less of you, more of Him. David wanted to bless God. And David could build. And he could collect resources. And he could, he could command men. He could put it all together. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I honestly think that if David had built the temple, he'd have built God a bigger, better temple than Solomon did. Not that it wasn't big and great and awesome, but he probably would have gone even more because David had enough to, in him to know that the grandiose displays, if they're going to mean anything, they have to be truly grand. Like he would have probably marked out a temple size that was a hundred times as big as Solomon and said, I won't get this built in my lifetime, but I'm going to get started on it. And we're going to build this out over the next five generations and it's going to be half the size of the city. Right? So that no one within 100 miles can look into the sky and not see the temple of God. This is the kind of heart that David had for God. But he realized that that grandiose display at the point at which he was walking in front of the Ark of the Covenant anyway was not available to him. So he put on a linen ephod and he danced like a madman to God's honor and glory. And I'm wondering when people who have become Christians who have realized that God has saved their soul by grace, you can't earn it. By grace, your works of righteousness will always be as filthy rags, will get to doing the things that God wants them to do that they don't think God wants them to do, or they don't think God would use them for, or they don't think that would fit their personality. I'm not about to call for an underwear dance. But spiritually and emotionally, you're going to have to decide to do the things that God would have you to do that are outside you. And that's when you'll be honoring the Lord the way David wanted to. And there will be someone who will look at you and say, oh, you're getting an awful lot of attention by doing that. And you will give the glory to God. But there will be someone who knows the Lord, who knows what God wanted you to do, who will look at you and he'll say, yeah, I see what you're actually doing. You're humbling yourself before God. You're honoring God outside your own capabilities, outside your own strength to do what it is that God would have you do. You're glorifying God by humbling you. Second thing in the text I want you to see in there is that Michal was the end of Saul's line. She was the end of the story for Saul, really. Some say she was wronged by David or trapped in a horrible relationship or she was unloved or she was ripped away from the man who truly loved her. That she was just from the wrong family and had it, you know, bad the whole time. She's the one who lowered David in a basket out the wall to escape Saul. But later, when David gave credit for escaping Saul, you know who he gave it to? Jonathan. Not McCall at all. She wasn't mentioned. But, you know, that was their society. Women didn't really have a lot of rights and they didn't get mentioned a lot. But that's not Christian or godly society. Of course, David wasn't a Christian, but he was a follower of the Lord. The bottom line is, her house ends here. It ends at the moment that she does not recognize that David is humbling himself before God. 
when she accuses those who are serving God in humbling themselves before God of actually looking for attention themselves. You know how many times in, I, I mean, you know me, I'm not really, you know, outspoken about me or anything like that. I, mean, I do use some examples from my life and I try to be very transparent. I've repented a number of times in the pulpit and things like that. But so often I'm, I'm treated or talked to like I am an enemy. Like my opinions about what Scripture says are flawed when I literally am just taking it the way it's written. I'm attacked for my political views. All I have to do is say one thing, that I don't agree with something or I agree with something, and, and I will be attacked from all kinds of people that I don't e- didn't even know existed. There are a lot of people who just don't get it. But now in this church, there are people who recognize I'm just trying to do my best, serving the Lord, whatever, and they will stand up for me, and they will stand with me, and they will try to do what it is that God would have them to do. And that's what we're called to be. The reality is that God can take away all of your positive outcomes, all of your hopes and dreams, or what you think, or the next generation, or where you want to be one year from now, five years from now, 10, 20. God can take all of that away. And you say, but that's not nice. No, it's not nice. It's wrath. It's violent opposition. Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant because there was a little shake and he thought it might fall off the brand new cart when the ox stumbled and God killed him instantly. And like it says in the text that David got mad when he heard that Uzzah had been killed. He was angry with God. But David didn't know Uzzah's heart and he submitted that to God. He named that place the place at which God destroyed Uzzah and then he sent the ark off into Obed-Edom's house and didn't bring it up to Jerusalem. He said, how can I bring that up to me? God is holy. Listen to me. If you dance in a linen ephod before the Lord in a prideful way, He's likely to destroy you or your house or your family or your finances. This is no joke. The God of heaven can eliminate your positive outcomes. And in many cases already had. We were once objects of wrath. And if we are now followers of Lord Jesus Christ, but working in our own strength, unwilling to work in God's strength, unwilling to submit to the Lord, unwilling to follow the Lord the way He said, then we are probably facing that wrath despite the fact. What did He say? He said, I'll love Him. I'll never stop loving Him, but I'll beat Him with the rods of men when He is disobedient. God's not going to walk away from us. He's going to hang with us to the very end. But He is going to chastise or discipline us because He loves us. He's not going to let us keep going our own way. You've got to go God's way. You have to. The two sons of Eli were were destroyed. Eli himself fell off a chair and broke his neck when the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. He goes back. Look at every time the judge fell away, the people went into wickedness, and then God sent the nearby nation to come and attack God's people. And men died. And women died. And children were killed. Because the people were not honoring God with their choices. They were worshiping false gods. God chose Jacob over Esau. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. It's the God of heaven. doesn't mean he didn't love him as a human being, but he despised him in comparison to the people of promise who would be God's people would eventually foster and begin the church which started us. We all got saved because of Jacob. Not because of Esau. Esau founded a nation called Edom. You can go there now. In the mountains, they carved huge stone fortresses. Look it up online. Some awesome pictures of huge stone fortresses. Fortresses carved in the mountains. And you know where the people are? (laughs) Nobody else knows either. God said, eventually I will wipe that nation from the face of the earth and no one will remember what happened to it. And guess what happened to Edom? 
All the people disappeared and nobody knows what happened. They figure a nation came in and, and literally carried them all into captivity or whatever and it was never recorded in history. But God said he would wipe them out and he did. God can eliminate your positive outcomes. You can literally cease to exist in the kingdom of God unless you figure out that there is a way to honor God and it has to do with you getting outside your personal preferences, outside what you think is right, outside your judgment of God and God's people and living there. Okay, God, I get it. You're big. You're strong. You saved me. You cleansed my soul. You inhabited me. Because of that, I have an eternity to have with you. Now, I'm done. I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for the one who died for me. 2 Corinthians 5. Michal was the end of Saul's line. So we got the end of a house. But then look at what David was promised. The thought of what God had promised to David easily overcomes David's desires to build God a house. David said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, have I ever asked anybody to build me a house? David said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, have I ever asked anybody to build me a house? Listen to what I've done for you. Listen to what I'm doing for you. Listen to what I'm going to do for you. And from that moment on, David lets it go. He doesn't say, I'm going to go build a house anyway, even though God doesn't want me to do that. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep being the kind of guy who can work with the military and work with the soldiers and work with the temple and work with the money and all that. That's how I'm going to honor God. No, he poured out his heart before God. And we see that all throughout the Psalms. David decided that the proper response to what God had done, is doing, and will do is praise David's desires to do one more thing for God were easily overcome by God's replacement plan for him, which was to praise Him. To live humbly before the Lord and put God first. And he danced in a linen ephod and he wrote psalm after psalm after psalm and he was in the temple and they praised God. And that's what you and I are called to do. The next time God does something good for you, this is going to happen, okay? You're going to get a check in the mail. Oh, man, I wasn't expecting this money. This is awesome. I'm going to give God some of that, man. I'm going to, make sure. I'm going to thank God for that money by giving Him some. The moment in time you make that decision, it's already too late. Your heart is in the wrong place. You've got it all wrong. Yes, God may have sent you that check. Yes, God is blessing you. He's blessing you because of His character. It's not a question about what are you now going to do with those blessings. We say that all the time, don't we? God has blessed me. Now what am I going to do with those blessings? God has literally already gave you the kingdom. You are heir and joint heir with Christ. Which means every blade of grass on that lawn outside eventually owns to, is owned by us. Every star in the sky whose names we cannot name eventually owned by us. Free access to the throne room, throne room of God to spend time with our Father. Free access to come and go from the new heaven and the new earth, to ride a horse in one moment and shoot across the stars in the next. Free access. And we're going to thank God for a check in the mail. We're going to give Him a little bit more money because He gave us a check in the mail. You should be, we should be living a heart of gratitude every day, all the time. And there should be no question if God sends us a blessing that He's going to get back much of it because we're already giving back much of everything. When you get in view that God, what God will do, how God has changed you, past, present, and future, what God is building for you, your priorities will change from building something for God 
to praising the Lord with your every breath, action, and step. You won't be able to spew venom because your mouth will be too busy busy spewing praise. You won't be able to do something more for God because your schedule will be so busy with the things that you are doing to give Him praise and glory that there will be no time left over to go, oh, I better give Him something more. Like the little boy who had no money to put in the offering plate and walked up to the front of the sanctuary and eventually... he. All the money went into one plate and the other plate went on the ground and he stepped and stood in the plate and said, I got no money, but I give him me. That'll be you. And you'll stop looking at the balance of your checking account thinking, I have enough money to pay my bills or I don't have enough money to pay my bills. You have a God that will pay your bills if you will put the kingdom of God first. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So you will get out of bed in the morning and you will say, okay, Lord, how do I praise you actively with this day? What would make this day the most about me getting out of the way and lifting you up so everybody can see? What would make this day about that? But that's not what people are doing. Not only people out in the world, lost people that don't know Jesus, but people in the church too. When we get a view of what God will do, you can't buy your ticket to heaven. Your retirement is not going to buy one tiny little stone on your driveway in heaven. It's not going to do it. Winning a million people to Jesus would not give you the right to walk into the throne room of God when you die. Nothing would do that. Nothing you can do will ever entreat God to do it. Now, I understand it says give and whatever measure by which you give will be given back to you. But why do you think that is? Because when you give, your heart is already in the right place. Right? You're already doing this to praise God. I'm doing it because I love God. God has already done so much more for me than I could ever do for Him. I'm going to stop trying to do for Him to pay back what He's done for me and start paying it forward and giving it all to God all the time as much as I possibly can. When you get in view that which God will do, it will change your priorities from a priority of building something for God to a priority of praising God with your voice, with your actions, with your strength, with your breath. For a priority of praising God. Obedience is praise when you think about it correctly. Oh, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm going to stop lying. I was listening to a woman who did a little devotional and she said she used to have a real problem with speeding. And she would drive 10, 15 miles over speed limit everywhere she went. So then she heard the pastor preach on it sometime and he said, if you just govern your foot and think of it as praise, think of it as you're praising God when you set the speed at or below the speed limit or within four miles or wherever you set it, set the speed there and you don't drive that 15 mile over and you think of every moment that you're choosing not to drive 15 mile over the speed limit, you think of every moment that you're doing that as praising God. And she said from that moment on, she never sped, she didn't have a problem. Because she just would put her foot on the pedal and if she got up to about 65, she'd say, praise Jesus, I'm going 65. And from that moment on, she was able to do it. And it's you too. It's about getting out of bed in the morning. It's about going to bed at night. It's about working out. It's about eating right. It's about encouraging others. It's about stepping up and serving. All the things, if you would think of everything you're doing as praising God, you will soon find some things that you are doing that cannot be thought of as praising God. Too many calories, too much caffeine, a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of pornography on the side or just some soft pornography, girls in bikinis, you know, whatever. Guys, 
muscle guys and string bikinis or whatever the, the work, whatever your thing is, all of that, none of that can be done as praising God. And if your heart is in the right place like David, then it's less me, more God. And when you do that, you'll be like, hey, I can't do this praising God. So then you start to cut it out naturally because you're going to replace it with that which will praise God. But maybe you don't realize what God has done for you or what God is doing for you or what God is eventually going to do for you. Maybe that's why your actions are not praising Him. I submit to you that if that's true, you need to repent and turn to the Lord today and make your actions praise Him. The next time you say can't, I want you to think of this. In our family, Alicia was growing up, we just started having to do this with Ariana a little bit. And she would say can't all the time. I can't buckle my seatbelt. I can't get my door shut. I can't do this. I can't, can't put my socks on. Can't, can't, can't. And we used to say what? There is no can't. There is no can't. God tells you to do something. There is no can't. You say, but if I go out there, I may wind up dead. Okay, fine. There is no can't. When you know what it is that the Lord would have you do, there is no can't. You say, but I'm addicted to caffeine. I have to drink all that caffeine, which I know is too much, right? There's an amount of caffeine that's reasonable. There's an amount that's not. I have to do that. Or I'm addicted to watching TV. I have to stream and see I asked 40,000 episodes, right, of the three to ten different varieties. I have to sit in front of the TV every night for two to three hours. I have to do that. I'm addicted to it. It's who I am. It's who God made me to be. Get outside who God made you to be and make a choice to honor the Lord in that moment and turn the TV off and read your Bible and pray, sing praise songs until you fall asleep. The next time you feel like you have to do something that does not honor God, Read your Bible and pray and sing praise songs until you fall asleep. And then get up the next day and ask yourself, today, how am I going to live? Or maybe you don't understand what it is that God has already done, what He's doing and what He's going to do for you. The point now is to be a people of praise, obedience, and gratitude. Jesus said to the woman at the well or to the disciples there and all that were gathered, He said that God is looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. And when you're watching things you're not supposed to be watching, when you're doing things you're not supposed to be doing, when you're eating things you're not supposed to be eating, when you're failing to take care of yourself in the way that will allow you to be God's servant for another 50 to 80 to 100 years on the earth, when you're failing to do those things, it's because you don't have an understanding of your relationship with God, which is supposed to be, this is my action of praise. Talking with the brother, I say, I need to get this done. He says, I can't do that. I call a sister on the phone. I said, I need to get this done. She said, I'll make it happen. Another day I call a sister on the phone. She says, I can't do that. I'm busy doing this. It's a work for God. I know, but I'm busy. Okay? Call another one. Yep, I'll do it right now. I was supposed to go do this, this, and this. I have all these things i got to do, but I see that's for God. I'm going to do that right now. Are you willing to do that? You want to bless God. If you know these things, you want to bless God. How will you lift Him up and humbly get out of the way? As I said before, one way that works do that thing you never would do. Not something that's sin, but it's different. Something that in your personality you would not give up. You say, I can't. I can't do it. When God told me I was not allowed to have pop after 40 days of not having pop, I'm like, but God, but come on. I want the pop. And I'm not saying you have to give a pop, by the way. You find your way of doing something for God that you would not normally do. You're like, I can't do this unless God does it through me, and then do that, and then tell everybody about it because God did it. Tell them what you've seen and what you've heard. Matthew 5.14, the same concept. We are very near the end. We've got one reference left. Matthew 
you probably already kind of like, that, that rings a bell. It's, so, it's about something I know, but I want the verses before it and after it, so I'm going to fl- flip there. Toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? I want to ask you, as a Christian, what do you taste like? And I, that's being just overly simple. When people encounter you, do they encounter somebody who is actively at that moment praising God? Like when you go out to eat, like do you bow your head and pray when you go out to eat? And if you do, do you do it silently? Or do you do it loudly? Not, not rudely, but loud enough that somebody at least a couple of tables away would hear? Do you offer to pray with your server if you go out to eat? Some of us like, I don't ever go out to eat. But when you're with us, when you have somebody over to your house, or you go over to their house, you go, I don't have anybody over their house. So why don't you have anybody? Well, that's just not what I do. Okay, well, there's one thing you can put on your list. You could go out to eat to praise God. You could call somebody over to your house to praise God. You could go to somebody's house to praise God. You could do those things to praise God. And then when people encounter you, they will encounter somebody praising God instead of talking about sports or whatever. They will encounter somebody praising God. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's foot. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. You know why? Because you know what God has done for you. You know what God is doing for you. And you know what God will eventually do for you. And you are the light of the world to show that. To teach that, to praise God for that, to dance in a linen ephod. Listen, if you can't call people on the phone, text people, show up at their house, you can't send gifts, give more, serve more, do more, mark more hours out in your day, then get your stinking underwear and get down front and start dancing. Because somebody somewhere better be able to figure out that you're shutting you down and turning God on in your life, or otherwise, you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If nobody can see a light in you, no one can see the... So you're serving. You're like, I'm serving, but I don't ever tell anybody about Jesus. I'm serving, right? I'm strong. I'm doing strong things. I'm smart. I'm doing smart things. I'm wealthy. I'm doing wealthy things. I'm tricky. I'm doing tricky things. I know how to dress myself. I'm dressing, okay? How on earth does that show anybody that you're a follower of Jesus? And the answer is, it doesn't. If you just be who you are, who God made you to be, that will not show anybody something different. But if you've been born again, made new, got a spiritual gift, got something you could do you couldn't do before, you do that, you start showing up when nobody expects you to show up, or in ways that nobody expects you to show up, then they'll go, what is going on with that person? We are not of this world. People should be looking at us going, what is going on with that person? Why is it every single time I run into him, he's singing a a praise hymn? Or why does he always say that line about James chapter 1? Or why why does he always offer to pray for me every time I see him? People should be wondering, because you're the light of the world. You know what God did for you, is doing for you, and will do for you. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, essentially, that this is the people that we're supposed to be. Last reference of the day, Ephesians. I'm going to use a verse from chapter 1 and then verses from chapter 4. Once I find it. Okay? 
Ephesians is a great book about the church. In fact, it's largely about the church. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you, you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. That was written to the church. Look at what he prayed for them. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you can wake up and see what's going on, so that you can know what is the hope of his calling. How big, how mighty, how powerful, how effective is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? God's going to give you more than you could earn in your lifetime, and he's going to give it to you for an eternity without end. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power? The power of God, for crying out loud, we need to see that towards us who believe according to the mighty working of His strength. We can figure this out. It's pretty obvious. That which you experienced when you got saved, you've got to be saying something about it. You've got to let it affect who you are. Then in 4, 17 through 24, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. Hang on. We shouldn't live like the world lives, translating it to modern vernacular. We shouldn't live like the world lives in the futility. We shouldn't be thinking like they think. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity. That means various sexual things. For the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. And then he gets into, and I won't read it, he says, therefore, put away lying, speak the truth, and a variety of other things that we should do that are good works that we tell people they should do out of obedience to the Lord. Recognize what God has already done and what he has promised to do for you and respond accordingly. Turn your attention to praising Him every moment of every day. He has now chosen us as His temple, not a house made of cedar or a tent made of tarps or carpets, We have become His light. And in time, our crazy actions, our self-sacrifice and self-denial will become obvious to all as His work in us. What He is calling you to give up, what what He is calling you to put in, what He is calling you to be, that's easy. He's calling you to be His. To walk in Him. He's got to be in your life at every moment of the day that you're awake and have any control over it. And probably then it'll be in your dreams too. He's calling you to be His, to walk in Him. And to make this same relationship available to a lost and dying world. When it's like that, you'll be able to stop reading your Bibles going, it says, thou shalt not lie. Well, I better stop lying. Because instead you'll be, I'm praising God through speaking the truth. You won't have to read that where it says, and shall have no other gods before me, no idols. Don't worship anyone or anything else and declare its value or their value because 
you'll be busy declaring God's value. You'll be looking every day, at every moment. How do I praise the Lord with this? What I'm going through. Mikal got the raw end of the deal. But I submit to you, her story would have ended completely differently if she had just recognized how much honor God deserves and how much a great man, the greater the man, the more he should humble himself before God. If she had just figured that out, this story would have ended differently. I'm asking you, I want to, for me. I want to figure it out. I want to live my life every moment of every day in praise to the living God who has done so much already, who is doing so much in me, and who is doing way more in the future than I can ever understand. By the time you have to be corrected and somebody admonish you, you already missed the boat. You already forgot. Already failed to understand. I pray that our hearts will be enlightened and we will realize how much God has done, how much he is doing, and the eternal house that he is promising us. That son of David that would be on the throne forever, that's our Jesus. And we are heirs and joint heirs with him. If we can figure this out and live accordingly. I'm going to say a brief prayer for us today and then we'll be having the praise team come and we'll praise our way out. And we, we forget sometimes we talk about the hymn of decision that that's praise, but it is praise. If you don't have a reason to repent today, if you don't have a reason to say, hey, I have not been praising God with my life every moment of every day and I want to turn my life over to Him and let Him do that through me, I've been allowing my weaknesses or my experience to hold me back to do things that God would have me to do. I've been feeling like I need to do more for God because I, I'm so grateful for what He does, but instead of me doing more, building something on this earth, feeling like I'm doing something more for God, I need to realize all my actions need to be out of praise. All my steps need to be in His ways. And if you need to make that decision, then make it. But if you don't need to make that decision, then it's a praise song. That God led you to a place already where you already know and you already are all day long, every day, trying to live according to praising Him. Jesus is not Lord 20, 23 hours out of the day. He's Lord 24 hours out of every day. So if you're taking breaks here and there, you have no Lord at all. No breaks. Just Jesus. All the time. We're in eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. We see our weaknesses. We also see our strengths. Sometimes the enemy comes at us and makes us want to ignore our strengths. And we don't want to use our strengths. And then we don't want to work on our weaknesses because we realize that we'd fail or we wouldn't do well. But in our greatest weaknesses, you are made strong. We see what you did on the cross at Calvary. When I think about how it's been six years since we signed our Constitution, I think it's about how it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross. Both of those seem impossible to me. Time's moved so quickly. It's been 2,000 years almost since Jesus died on the cross. It's hard to fathom. For me, it was that day when I was 25 years old and I encountered you for the first time 
You forgave me of my sins. Set me on a new course. And then it was this morning. And it was just moments ago. And I said the things that are hard for me to say, hard for me to grapple with. But I can trust them because they are your things. Father, help us deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow after you. And help us stop thinking that means we can do it our way. <laughs> I don't understand why we ever thought deny ourselves, do it our way, that those two things go together. It doesn't make sense. They are almost opposites. I do know that people find their group. They find a rhythm serving you, following you, praising you every moment of every day. And they cut things out of their lives, perfectly good things. And people are like, oh, why'd you have to cut that out? It's a perfectly good thing. It's not even sin, right? And they cut them out. They let them go. Dismiss them. And they're better off for it. I guess I'd, I'd much rather be praising you every moment of every day, every second that I can control. And I'm asking your help for that. You never asked me to build you a house. You never even asked me to become a house. You did it all for me. And for every person that's in this room, who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And every person that's listening, or that ever hears this message, or that any person in this room takes this message or one like it out to the world, the gospel is simple that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. And believing in Him, they're saved, forgiven, have a Lord, have eternal life. Father, help us praise You every moment of every day. So we won't have to find ourselves going, oh, I want to do more for God. But rather find ourselves saying, I can't believe what I've been able to do for God. It's amazing. God is so good. And there will be no underwear dancing, Lord. But we know there will be embarrassing moments, hard moments, challenging times to overcome, times in which we will feel like the victim, we'll feel like things didn't go the way we thought they should have gone. And those times, Lord, we pray that with your help we will be found praising you for all that you've done, all that you're doing and all that you will do. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask Christy to come forward at this time and lead us in our closing hymn. And if you're not making some kind of a decision in your heart today, then you praise God right where you are. And if you are making some kind of decision, then you come and make that information public and let yourself be held accountable, let yourself be prayed for and encouraged as we commit ourselves to praise the daily. Would you stand and sing with us?
say to God, say, God, in your mind, your heart, you say, God, I want to give that up. I want to use, give it up, to praise you every moment of every day. Make that a sin right now. Say, I'm giving it up and praise to God. Maybe there's something in your heart and your mind right now that God's saying, you got to do that. And you're like, that's outside me. That's not my normal thing. That's not what God would have me to do. God wants you to do it. And you say to God, say, okay, God, I'm going to do it. It's crazy. I'll do it. It's outside me. I'll do it. It's crazy. No other reason. Give God my glory. Give God the glory he deserves. Maybe you're here today and you say, I need to be baptized. The way God says I should be baptized. Put the old self behind the new life.